Hi everyone, this is Galina Antoa from Clarity and you're listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. What's up, folks? Welcome to episode 20. Today, we're going to be jumping back into the topic of cybersecurity. But to be honest, this episode is stacked, and that's just one area that we're going to be covering. The reason is we have a fantastic guest today. Her name is Galina Ntova, and she is the co-founder of Clarity a company that is focused on security for OT, otherwise known as operations technology. Not too long ago, we finished doing our four-part cybersecurity mini-series with Rockwell Automation, and you all were asking for more content around cybersecurity, and there is no one better than Galena to bring that type of information to the show. But I said we'd cover more ground than just that, so what are the three things you can expect from today's episode? Well, first, we are going to jump into the security topic. We're going to go into what Clarity does, define some important terms like critical infrastructure, discuss why right now is the perfect storm for OT cybersecurity, and why IT tools should not be used for operations technology security. Second, we're going to cover the startup story behind Clarity. Galena will share where she saw the need, we'll cover the unique story about her and her co-founders, and how to lead through not only rapid growth, but uncertain times as well. Finally, we'll talk about empowering underrepresented voices in industry. From Galena's experiences as a female leader in a male-dominated space, to much larger topics that impact not just this industry, but society as a whole, Galena shares some powerful examples and actionable advice to bring about real change in manufacturing and beyond. Like many of our most dynamic episodes, this one is full of resources. If you'd like to connect with Clarity first, you can go to Clarity.com. Let me make sure I'm clear, no pun intended. Clarity is spelled C-L-A-R-O-T-Y, just like they're an operations technology company. So C-L-A-R-O-T-Y, that is also their handle at Twitter, so just at Clarity on Twitter if you want to follow them on social media. But as an overall repository for all the resources mentioned today, you can just go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 20 to access everything mentioned in this episode. On a related topic, if you are enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review over at iTunes. It's very easy. You just hit that five-star button, or you can write a review that is as short as one sentence long. It does not need to be complicated. You can go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes to be taken directly to the Apple Podcast platform on your iPhone or on your computer. All right, I mentioned we have a lot of ground to cover today, so let's not spend any more time here on this introduction. I'm excited to get you introduced to Galena for today's interview. All right, our guest today is the co-founder of Clarity, a company that has quickly risen as a leader in cybersecurity for critical infrastructure for operations technology networks. She's worked with some of the biggest names in security across the globe and is a change maker in an industry that has long been overdue for advancement. 
Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome security savant, Galina Antova. Galina, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. Thank you for having me. Excited to have you here. Excited to get to, to feature Clarity on the show because I've heard a ton about you as someone that that works at Rockwell, but just being in the manufacturing industry in general. And uh, in the spirit of manufacturing happy hour, we always want to start off in, you know, what I'd say is a, a casual fashion. So let's say, you know, we're at a trade show and we're at the social hour after the trade <laughs> show is the hours have wrapped up for the day. And someone comes up to you and is like, you know, Galena, I know that Clarity works in critical infrastructure. You're doing operations technology, uh, security for operations technology in that space. But but what does that really mean? How do you explain it to them if you're, you know, at a happy hour having a drink with them? Great question. So I would usually start with uh, a joke along the lines of, well, the world actually runs on operational technology networks, mm -hmm. and this is what we're securing. Um, but really, jokes aside, this is just, I think, a topic that we don't talk about a lot. And that's the fact that, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of conversation around IT security, which is basically the protection um, and the monitoring of all of our digital infrastructure when it comes to the regular IT networks in the enterprise. But if we think about the operational technology networks or the networks that actually are connecting all the devices related to physical process, processes, mm -hmm. every single company in the world has a component of operational technology networks. Some are more critical than others. So for example, in things like manufacturing and oil and gas and electric utilities, obviously the operational technology networks are the backbone of the business. But even if you're just a, uh, a company that has nothing to do with manufacturing, you still have um, offices that have mm -hmm. building management systems and HVAC and elevators and really anything that touches a physical infrastructure, physical process in the world has a component of operational technology uh, networks. And the reason I'm so passionate about that is because it's also OT has been such a huge blind spot for security teams, right? So. Mm. Traditionally, those devices are a uh, lot, lots of them are legacy devices built to be out there in the field for 25, 35, sometimes 45 years. Yeah. And, um, and so that makes them very challenging to protect. Now, combine that with uh, many attack vectors that we're seeing nowadays, a lot of them actually introduced uh, more recently because of the COVID crisis, right? So a mm -hmm. lot of remote connectivity. And, and obviously combining that with the very opportunistic adversaries that are realizing the importance of those um, networks and therefore they understand that they're valuable, we kind of find ourselves in that perfect storm where we don't have enough visibility into those networks. We're expected to protect them and the adversary has realized that they're very valuable. So as an industry, this is kind of where we are right now um, in terms of the, 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 I would say, the risk posture of those networks. I'd say that there's at least 25 years of a gap between the risk posture of IT and OT networks, and this is largely because of the of the points that I mentioned. Now, going mm -hmm. forward, we don't have 25 years to address that gap, right? So part of mm -hmm. what Clarity does and part of what I've dedicated the last nine, almost nine years of my life, first with Siemens and now with Clarity, is thinking through how can we accelerate um, that path of closing those security gaps in OT um, so that we can have a more holistic governance and risk reduction across the whole organization. 
A lot of great information there. A couple areas on that I'd love to get some more definition so I can make sure our listeners capture Mm -hmm. some of the most critical points. One thing that really jumped out in that was you mentioned, you know, not only that it's been a 25 year gap before we've seen some updates. So there's definitely a need for immediate improvement. But why is right now, as you described it, the perfect storm? A lot of it has to do with the additional attack vectors. So many, yes. So it's challenging enough for a company, uh, a regular company to just kind of take all of their employees, have them work remotely. Obviously that introduces a lot of challenges. Now, if you think that you also have to do that to some or all of your OT engineers that are actually physically uh, um, in, in those physical processes, interacting with the HMIs and the controllers that are driving the physical process, that mm-hmm. makes it that much more complicated. I mean, think about doing uh, remote maintenance or changing the programming of a controller completely from a remote, um, uh, from uh, completely uh, through remote work. Uh, that obviously requires a very different um, security, requires different um, uh, cyber posture. Uh, mm-hmm. securing everything from, uh, you know, the end devices to the communication. So it just introduces quite a lot of complexity into that. Now, what's even more interesting is that it's not just COVID. It's not like COVID's going to happen and we're going to go back to, quote unquote, what we considered normal. Mm-hmm. I think that as painful as the current situation is, it is also given a lot of people the realization that, had we invested more, more time and, and implementation upfront to ensure that infrastructure is more distributed and some of those remote access connectivity is enabled and secure, our life would not only be much easier now, but we could also uh, capture quite a lot of productivity gains um, and many other gains that come with digital transformation projects. So one of the silver linings that I've discovered through my conversations with chief information security officers and many OT engineers is that now they understand across the whole organization, their peers, the board understand the value of those digital transformation projects. And so I expect for us to see a lot greater acceptance of those projects and a greater acceleration going forward. So if, if I heard that right around the perfect storm, there's this this multiplier effect. You take the criticality of some of these processes and then you add the fact that you're logging in remotely and you're making these type of changes and it all kind of adds up to make it that much more of an issue. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you have to add to that the threat landscape, right? So mm-hmm. obviously, adversaries are very opportunistic. Um, mm-hmm. They don't care about, you know, to the adversary, a network is a network. They don't care if you're labeling it an IT. OT doesn't really matter. Um, they're starting to realize that your critical infrastructure, your OT networks are extremely valuable um, because mm-hmm. obviously in many cases they affect the bottom line. Um, and, and therefore, if they're critical to your operations, that means that they're valuable to you. And so things like uh, ransomware, et cetera, are activities that we expect to see increasingly so, increasing very much in the future. And one other thing that I'd like to point out, Chris, we are kind of judging the situation by the very few um, incidents and data points that we have. Again, I'd Mm -hmm. like to go back to my opening where I said that OT networks still remain pretty much a black box to the security organizations of of many companies. And that is due to the fact that they don't even have, in many cases, the basic security uh, tools to allow us to monitor them, et cetera. So Mm. it's kind of like there's a saying that, that I say often, which is, 
um, the absence of evidence is not evidence for the absence of the attackers on those networks, right? So we're just kind of seeing the tip of the iceberg, I believe, when it comes to what actually is going on in these networks. And is, as we deploy more technologies to gain visibility and to be able to monitor those networks, I think that we'll discover a lot more adversarial activities. Mm, great, clear, great. Um, I guess being clarification and emphasis around the type of adversaries that are out there and how those play into that. You know, let's go back to the the trade show happy hour really quickly. <laughs> you were talking about how, um, you know, the there's this black box to operations technology networks and that they're, you know, the, I, I always think of something when I think of cybersecurity, someone might say, you know, Hey Galena, why, why can't I use like it approaches to my OT cybersecurity? How does that play into this? How would you answer that? Yeah, that's a great question. I can talk about that for hours, but <laughs> basically, uh, basically we're dealing with very different, um, endpoints, right? So first of all, as I mentioned, we're dealing with legacy devices mm -hmm. um, that are in many cases, real time machines. So something like a PLC programmable logic controller that is actually physically like running or commanding, so to speak, telling the physical process what to do. It's a real time machine. And so it's much more sensitive to other technologies being installed um, on that device, you're dealing with a lot of proprietary protocols. So it's not like in the IT domain where you can just have a any IT um, security technology that is able to dissect the traffic. In OT networks, every single vendor has their own proprietary protocol. And so if you're if you want to be able to examine the network communication, the traffic, you need to basically build your own quote unquote translators for those protocols, and that's a huge burden because no customer has only one OEM, right? So like customers have various different, um, various different um, uh, OEMs, equipment manufacturers in their environments. And so that just kind of puts a very high threshold. Uh, obviously we've got uh, uh, latencies issues on the networks. We've got extreme mm -hmm. complexity. And in general, uh, we have an environment where because of the legacy nature of the devices, many of the activities that we consider very simple in IT, something like an active scan to, the, to determine what assets you have on your network, this is something that could literally bring down the OT network. And so the requirements of uptime and availability are very different. The nature of the endpoints that we're dealing with is very different, and that requires a very different approach. Now, what I always say is that the outcome is always the same. We're looking for risk reduction. But the core security controls that we're going to use to implement would have to be you know, technologies that A, uh, do not impact the uptime and availability of those networks and B, actually understand the proprietary languages they speak, uh, they speak on. And the silver lining to that, I think these are all kind of negative aspects in terms of like how complex things are. But the positive aspect to all of that is, is we're starting from scratch. There literally are mm -hmm. very few to none security technologies already deployed in operational technology. And so we can take advantage of that. And instead of having to put together, you know, 15, 20 security tools and take three years to do a segmentation project the way we have in, in the IT domain, um, we can really think from scratch as to can, you know, one technology, for example, satisfy multiple use cases. Um, and again, 
look for technologies that are native built, natively built for those OT networks and that satisfy many of those core security controls, many of those uh, use cases, so that you're going with something that is simplified to begin with and you're not adding that complexity from the IT. So yeah, basically to summarize, copying pasting uh, technologies from the IT just doesn't work. Best case scenario is going to do nothing, but the more common case is actually that it negatively impacts um, those networks. And so we need to be very, very careful in how we implement that. Um, and by the way, this is where a lot of the traditional, um, I would say, challenges of IT and OT teams working together come from. They come from the mm -hmm. fact that, you know, a few years ago, IT really had, we tried to kind of impose those, before the industry matured, they really, we, we saw a lot of IT security team trying to impose IT practices to OT and that of course backfired because the uh, end result will be reduced uptime and availability and a lot of issues in those OT networks. But now we're at a more advanced state of the industry where we've got the right tools and we've got the right approaches. Um, we just need to be very careful in how we apply them. Awesome answer. I love the parallel between, you know, the the challenges and the opportunities where and it's interesting because we talk about digital transformation a lot mm -hmm. on this show also. And and the the challenges seem to be similar where that is you have all of this you have this older equipment, you have such a variety of equipment. There's not necessarily a standard between there like you might see in more yeah. of a traditional IT environment. And I think what you were saying kind of feeds into our next question around where there's kind of this blank slate and you've had an illustrious career up, you know, you had an illustrious career up until um, starting Clarity. You know, you were with Intel, you were with Siemens, as you've mentioned. So why did you start Clarity then? I'm curious if it has anything to do with that last answer around that blank slate. Yeah, it was, um, it was pretty interesting. So when I first, I was with early in my career, I was with IBM in just the pure, you know, IT software development, security kind of different roles, technical roles, management roles. Um, haven't even heard of the fact that operational technology networks around the world have no idea what that is. And mm -hmm. so I had an opportunity after my MBA to be recruited for um, uh, like one of the most senior kind of executive programs at Siemens. Um, where that gave us an opportunity to look across the whole Siemens portfolio and to think about what are new businesses that could be started out of that. And so that was nine years ago. This was when we had just started seeing the first uh, cyber physical attacks um, on uh, critical infrastructure using using software weapons, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so when I when I came to Siemens and got introduced to this whole wonderful world of operational technology and pretty quickly understood that this is actually what makes the physical world run. Mm -hmm. um, and then realizing all the challenges associated with it, all the things that we mentioned, legacy devices, um, proprietary protocols, etc. And then I said, well, you know, for sure, the security companies, the existing cybersecurity companies must be doing something about this. This is just such a gigantic, uh, gigantic uh, field of opportunity. And I was very surprised to find out that they weren't. Um, so basically what I did for at Siemens for a number of years is to put together the industrial security services. This was a completely new uh, business segment that we built from scratch, which was helping mm -hmm. Siemens customers um, overcome some of those challenges related to their industrial security uh, protection. 
And just in the in the course of that discovery, it became pretty clear that the technical tools, right, from a process and governance perspective, were getting pretty advanced. But the actual technology that will help us to be much more effective in monitoring those networks, in making those visible networks visible, that mm-hmm. work was not being done, and it was not being done by the large security companies. And so this is kind of what gave me the idea for clarity. And gave me the, I would say, the courage to leave my sure. executive job at Siemens and, uh, <laughs> and to make that uh, jump and start a new company. Well, one, a couple things that I find interesting about that, you know, any any good startup story always seems to involve addressing a big problem. And the way you described it is, you know, the systems that make the world run there was a gap there. You weren't, you didn't see that, you know, holistic security strategy around it. So it gave you an opportunity to start Clarity. One thing that I found really interesting when I look at Clarity's origin story is you actually co-founded it and correct me if I'm wrong, but it looks like you co-founded it with unit 8200 of like the Israeli military intelligence core. um, that's like responsible for code decryption and signal intelligence and you also went through a teammate foundry, I think, in Israel as well. Where does where does that connection come from? I'm curious because that's very unique from what I've seen from most folks we've talked about. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's uh, it, it's not exactly with the government, but rather my two co-founders. Mm-hmm. They um, they come from um, uh, from from the IDF and from that organization, and so it's a. Uh, it's not a secret that Israel is just excellent um, at uh, creating a lot of cybersecurity talent. Um, they have one of the most advanced programs in the world, and there's just the way the program is structured. They just got a lot of cybersecurity uh, talent. This is why they have such a uh, an amazing, thriving ecosystem. And so, when I thought of like, well, who are the kind of the technical co-founders that I want to work with? Um, um, Israel was definitely top of my list, and through common connections, I found my way to uh, to my two mm-hmm. co-founders. And then, of course, that was in the context of uh, Team Aid, which is a cybersecurity foundry um, that is led by uh, Nadav Zafrir, who's the former um, he's the former director of Unit 8200. So that's uh, another connection. But really, that's just um, folks that have been on the front lines um, of, of of cybersecurity, and so having my perspective on the business opportunity um, with my kind of, you know, technical background and understanding the possibility and with them being on the front lines, that was just a perfect combination and being part of the accelerator. Also, we were pretty clear. The need was pretty clear in my mind. Mm-hmm. That we didn't have to go through a lot of market product fit iterations because this is what I've been doing at Siemens for the last few years is just kind of, you know, uh, talking to so many customers and partners, it was pretty clear what we needed to build, and mm-hmm. very quickly uh, we got funding and and we got going. So now, more than five and a half years later, we're almost uh, two hundred people company. We've raised uh, hundred million dollars from many of you know the strategic investors um, around the the world, including Rockwell, by the way. And so we're mm-hmm. very fortunate to have. To, uh, to be serving many of the Fortune 500 customers around the world. I think nowadays our footprint is in about 17 different industry verticals in over 50 countries. Mm-hmm. So that's just a testament to the, to the need for such uh, operational technology cybersecurity solutions. And we're very proud of the progress we've had to date. We'll be right back, right after a word from our sponsor. 
This episode of Manufacturing Happy Hour is sponsored by Audible. Audible is the world's largest electronic library of audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. And because you listening to this amazing, amazing podcast, we're giving you one free audiobook when you sign up for your first trial of Audible. You can do that by going to audibletrial.com slash happyhourpod. Now, why would you want to do such a thing? Well, let's be honest. These podcasts only last about 30 minutes to an hour, but audiobooks give you much more listening pleasure beyond that. So when you wrap up your episode of Manufacturing Happy Hour, you can tune in to the audiobook of your choosing on Audible. You get a new credit every month, so that's a new book a month. And for me, that's where I get my leadership books. That's where I get my non-leadership books. That's where I get my rock and roll books. That's where I get my fiction Anything I want to read, typically, I'm going to Audible to get it. Again, you can claim your free audiobook by going to audibletrial.com slash happyhourpod. And now, let's get back to today's episode. Well, from what I've heard about Clarity, you, you've had just rapid growth. Like you just said, you're at 200 people already. In fact, I think I heard in one of your other interviews, you grew... 300% year over year one yeah. time. And yeah. you know, how how do you manage that type of exponential growth as a startup especially when you're serving so many very large companies like Rockwell Automation yeah. um that you know tend to move let, let's be honest it's no secret that a large company moves slower than a startup does. How do you how have you managed that? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, this is just where our passion happened to be. But from mm -hmm. all of the different kind of choices, we chose the hardest ones. So we're dealing, it's a very heavy B2B model. Um, we're dealing with a lot of the largest organizations in the world, which, as you mentioned, from an admin perspective, sometimes things are moving very, very slowly. Um, we're working in a very traditional domain of industrial, uh, of industrial operations, trying to bring cybersecurity to that. Um, so it was it was very challenging, I would say, conceptually. Um, but actually, once we hit the ground running uh, with a product and we started putting that product in everyone's hands, it was just the response from the customer was basically overwhelming. This is exactly what we need. This is giving mm -hmm. us all the visibility and the monitoring and the protection. Um, and so that response and that rapid adoption from the customers was what really allowed us to move very, very fast. Now, irrespective of all of that, it's still very challenging to scale a startup. Like you're going basically from doing one-on-one -on -one sales, you know, the founder is selling to building a whole sales organization. So obviously that has been challenging, but I think that mm -hmm. the product market fit spoke for itself. And there was just this, this great uh, gap that we were fulfilling uh, between, you know, the world moving so fast on the IT side and, and the world wanting especially to get into those digital transformation projects that required a lot of connectivity. They required a lot of, you know, distributed kind of infrastructure, whereas the OT networks were very much like trying to still be isolated. Um, and so we allowed them to, to get to that new stage of gaining the visibility, gaining the monitoring capabilities, and being able to uh, bring their OT networks into the 21st century, so to speak. One thing I always find interesting about startups, you mentioned that there was just tremendous uh, product market fit with your solution. Can, can you maybe go into that a bit more? Because it's not... 
I think a lot of startup founders, and this is coming from someone in the Bay Area, often have that build it and they will come mentality. And that's not always the case. I'd love to hear, how did you go about getting some of your first clients in this yeah. space? So, I mean, you're seeing what I'm sharing about Clarity is you're just kind of seeing the end result of the product market. Yeah, 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 yeah. So <laughs> I think that and it's and it's very different between consumer tech and and B2B. Right. So for something, most of the successful startups and, you know, friends that I have in that area that are dealing with like hard enterprise problems. Those usually the solutions to those, the inspiration for solutions to those came because those founders had been in like they have been intimately um, acquainted with the situation. They've been experiencing the problems themselves. They've seen the need firsthand, just like I saw that by working with a lot of the Siemens customers, by working with a lot of the Siemens partners. For something like a B2B, you know, large enterprise play, you have to see that problem in the wild, so to speak, and experience mm -hmm. it for some time before you can start forming your thesis. I think with consumer, you can rely a little bit more on your um, like human intuition for a lot of things, and you can just test things. And mm -hmm. so I think that for a lot of the successful B2B companies, the outcome that you're seeing in, in the initial market product fit is actually the... Um, end result of years and years of being in another field and actually, well, in, in the same field, actually, but looking at, um, at problems and just kind of formulating a thesis. Um, so it's a little bit, it's a little bit misleading in that sense, because uh, knowing what to build came from a lot of experiences that I've had uh, before deciding to, to start Clarity. But you're absolutely right for, especially for like selling to large enterprises, you really need to hit on the, on the exact need. And you need to also um, do that in a way uh, that eliminates a lot of traction for from the process. So I'll give you one example. There have been other security technologies on the market that are trying to address operational technology networks, but most of them had required something along the lines of like, I don't know, I have to deploy something, some physical gadget or device in front of every single PLC. Thinking through where the technology is actually deployed and how much time would it require for the customer team to actually implement that technology is extremely important. What we did in the case of Clarity to eliminate a lot of that um, friction was mm -hmm. actually to... Um, read the network traffic. So we didn't, so our touch point with the networks was much fewer points. And so by just reading the traffic, we were able to identify assets to put together the communication patterns, et cetera. But in terms of the, um, in terms of what that meant for the customer team, you know, we weren't asking them for months and months of their time. We were just asking them for a couple of hours to set it up. And so I think that's, one very important thing to consider uh, when you're dealing with enterprise customers. Great points around kind of the differences between B2B and B2C when it comes from starting a company. Yeah. One thing that also comes to mind, um, because we talked about your rapid growth, but now, you know, managing rapid growth is one thing. The other thing I'm curious about is right now we're recording this in June 2020 and we're in a very crazy time period to say the least. So on the flip side of managing through growth, how do you lead through times of uncertainty like we're having right now? Yeah, I mean, it all starts with communication. So um, the reality is that at the beginning of this, and even now, you know, no one's got a crystal ball and no one knows exactly how things are going to um, develop. It was extremely uh, 
important for us to, first of all, communicate to employees, make sure that employees are okay and they're safe and they can work safely. Um, there are obviously a lot of uh, mental health issues that come along the way as well. And those just need to be, you know, there needs to be the support mm-hmm. system for that because so much of what has happened in the last three months in terms of like the mental health and, and support, we take that for granted, but it's not, you know, we work in very stressful environments now, especially for um, those that have young kids, etc. So the environment has changed a lot. Um, it was extremely important to communicate and to make sure, first of all, that, um, the, the team is okay, right? So uh, people come come first. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one was um, obviously every every company in this environment was worried about their uh, their revenue flow, right? And the mm-hmm. reality is that a lot of deals had to be pushed just because the security teams were busy with making sure that the infrastructure is up and running and then and that the organizations are protected. And just obviously because of the financial uncertainty, some projects got pushed. Mm -hmm. What was really important for us is to think through how we can help our customers through that period of time, right? So Mm -hmm. could we give them better financial terms? Could we give them additional support? So it really, the relationship with a customer came first rather than just, you know, pushing a deal um, uh, down, down the road. And at the same time, it was also an opportunity for us um, to kind of think creatively of, given that now the world is going this way, right? And it's not, it's never going to completely going to come back to what we considered normal before that. What are the opportunities we can take advantage of? So one thing is we had a component of our system, which is a secure remote access component, which was, you know, in many cases, secondary to the way we were selling the Clarity platform. Obviously during COVID-19, that became a very, um, core component of how we were selling and that became an aspect of the offering that we're highlighting. So, you know, going forward, we're identifying those opportunities um, that basically would allow our customers to undergo that digital transformation even faster, right? So now Mm -hmm. that they've seen that this is a possibility and that it could be done and that it's not just a defensive move, uh, move, but it actually provides them with opportunities for for growth so digital transformation is a competitive advantage what are the ways in which we can push the market and push our product in a way that gets them closer to that end state so lots of new opportunities and lots of new ideas for the product development direction it's it's becoming a great i'm almost i don't want to say i'm here in a formula to this but if I, from some of this and other interviews we've done over the past couple of months it seems like communication is number one both internally and externally with your customers and then you know yes being focused on the revenue making sure the business is healthy but putting more of the focus on how can we help right now with that long-term perspective like you were wrapping up there with to prepare these people to execute quicker in the future as things improve yeah Very important because those are relationships that you want to have, you know, um, for years and years to come. This is not transactional business, especially when it Mm -hmm. comes to B2B. So you want to make sure that you're really there for your customers, not just, you know, one of the things I used to tell the team is just don't, we don't have to make statements. We don't have to send emails telling our customers how much we support them. Let's just go and do something for them to support them and they'll see the results, right? So actions speak louder than words for sure. Love that. Love that. Well, you've given us a lot of great info around cybersecurity in general, as well as Clarity's specific story. As as we get to the final portions of the interview, another area that 
I've come across in other interviews I've seen you do is your focus on diversity and advancing women in the workforce. And, you know, it's no secret that security and tech in general have long time been male dominated areas. And while, while we're seeing improvements, I'd love to hear some of your perspectives around, you know, what are the challenges that we're still seeing out there and and how have you overcome those uh, to become the successful leader that you are in this space? Yeah, I mean, so gosh, so much, so much that I can say about this topic. But uh, let me start by acknowledging, first of all, that we live in in crazy times and mm-hmm. um, and crazy in the sense that I think a lot of those inequalities and injustices are coming to the surface and they need to be addressed, right? Mm-hmm. So each of us individually needs to think about what what can we do to address those, but. Um, just to go by the numbers, and I don't have the perfect statistics on my in my head, but um, mm-hmm. we can grab those after the podcast. If you just look at the, I think it comes down to the fact that the world, the world's population, is not represented in the power structures. Period, and mm-hmm. so that applies to women. So very much, you know, my experiences yeah. and what I've fought for throughout my professional career. That mm-hmm. applies to race, that applies to everything you could imagine, whichever way you want to slice and dice humans, that applies to um, to uh, uh, basically all of those criteria. And so the world is not represented. We don't have the power. A lot of people feel that like they don't have the power. And if you look at the numbers, it's very, very clear. Look at the number of female CEOs at the Fortune 500 companies. I think last time I looked at the statistics, it was maybe 20 and I might be off by a few, but I think it's around that or maybe even less. And the one thing that stuck with me is that there were more leaders called John or Dave, again, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies that they were women in total, right? No so, way. Yeah, wow. That yeah. is, that I, is that, that's such a telling and, statistic. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we should go and look up that statistics, but, and I'm sorry that I'm forgetting the exact number, but it was just so, so telling. Um, so you look at boards, and obviously that governs business across the board. Um, you look at C-level executive management, and again, that tells you a story. Uh, it was very telling. In the last few days, as companies kind of started putting um, statements a lot around uh, diversity and Black Lives Matter and all that, mm-hmm. many people just questioned them. Okay, in addition to that statement, just put next to your statement a picture of your board and a picture of your C-level. And then tell me, what are you doing for diversity, right? Of course, we all condemn racism and all that. But what are you concretely, right? So like the real world is a lot more subtle. And and I understand, look, I judge from my experiences of of being a woman in, in technology, especially in cybersecurity, especially in something as hardcore as operational technology, cybersecurity. I understand that a lot of times people don't mean to offend. I've had probably Mm -hmm. hundreds, if not thousands of interactions where well-intentioned, you know, white males in like 99% of the cases would say something just because they're not, they're uninformed or because they just haven't thought about it because they have this bias that is completely unconscious. But mm-hmm. that, that that's not a justification, right? So the fact right. that you are not aware or not educated is not is not a justification. And so in my very little 
ways in which I could impact that, I have started, you know, 100% of the time just bringing very gently and respectfully those biases mm -hmm. uh, to the surface and just calling them out in a respectful way, because that's exactly what, mm. what a bias, you know, looks like. Everything from, you know, if someone doesn't know me or hasn't, doesn't know that is we're meeting, doesn't know of my background, if I'm walking into the room with my male colleague, 100% of the cases, they would assume that I work for my male colleague, even though it's, you know, 100% mm -hmm. the opposite. Um, so yeah. just very, very, very small uh, things like that, which, you know, it's, they're small if taken individually, but when they're put together, it's death by a thousand cuts. And then obviously I can't even imagine what that means if we extrapolate to, um, you know, um, communities that are affected by, by racism and, and all of those different things. But I just think in general, this is where a lot of the frustration in the world comes from, that, that mm -hmm. we're not represented in the power structures and uh I wrote an article or that saying that we basically will never have true equality until we until we have power. And so here's mm -hmm. the tricky part. Power is not something that you can just go and take. I mean, short of a revolution and a mm -hmm. war, which hopefully we're not going to get to that. Um, but power also, you need to be invited to power. So this is where a lot of the people that are already in power, um, especially across the business community, they have a responsibility to invite, you know, um, underrepresented minorities and just people who who um, are not represented in the power structures, they have they they have that obligation because of their leadership position to invite those people so that their voices are heard. And I hear a lot of times the um, the conversation is well we we want to give the job to the best person. And of course, mm -hmm. this should be the case. This doesn't argue for giving the job to someone who's not qualified, but there are just so many candidates that are qualified, but they're just not looked at because they don't fit some kind of a subconscious bias or subconscious profile that we have in our mind. So, you know, from, from like at my own personal level, what I can do is I can identify that bias and call it out, but oh my God, we're just at the baby steps at the very beginning mm -hmm. of addressing, of addressing this um, inequality and injustice. And it's going to take a really long time. Incredible points all around, and you're right. We could do a, to a podcast just on this topic yeah. alone, no doubt. You know, you addressed a lot of in very important things in there: unconscious bias, the more the macro issues where there are underrepresented groups that don't have that power, and inviting those people to power is very important around that. You know, if I look at this situation, one thing that I'm hoping is going to improve moving forward is people are starting to recognize that mm -hmm. there are just some things that, and I'll pick on myself as a male ally, I, I just, I will have never experienced what it's like to be a person of color in the world or a female in the industry or whatever that is. But I, I, I hope more people are out there real, realizing that and being like, I'm listening and I want to know what can I do to learn to be a part of that solution. And I, I'd love it if you could extrapolate on that inviting more people to the table type example a little bit more like what, because we have a lot of, we have a lot of women that listen to the show. We also have a lot of male allies that listen to this show. I'm curious, what are the steps we can be taking as individuals or as companies to level the playing field for lack of a better word? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I again, I think it really comes down to people in power inviting inviting other people to the table and just really having that conversation. Mm -hmm. I would say, you know, for anyone who's been privileged um, uh, if, 
from whatever perspective. I just think if you haven't, if there's something that is so um, important that other people are deciding to go and protest, for example, and if you don't, if you don't think that that exists in the world, then you should ask yourself, well, what is kind of like the little bubble that I'm that I'm living in, and what are some of the resources that I could read on, or how do I get myself educated, right? So that's more of like, if you're in a position of power, think about how to make that power representative of the world and who are the people that you have to invite to the table. When it comes to all of us at a very individual level, um, again, my own example is I just, I've started calling out unconscious bias, even if Mm -hmm. that is very uncomfortable. It's just really important to call it out and label it so that we can start identifying those blind spots um, that we have. That's the only way to move the conversation forward in a respectful way. Awesome advice, Galena. And and I'm going to talk to the audience here really quickly. So this is every week when I do this show, I, I give you folks out there a call to action. My call to action this week isn't to, you know, go download a link or go leave a five-star review for the podcast. My call to action for you is to do what Galena just said, call out unconscious bias where you see that in your conversations. And I'll echo that again as I do the outro later, but that's as much of a challenge for you guys as it, as it is for me. It's uncomfortable. You know, if, if there's one thing I've learned over these past weeks, or I should say just the past week in general, is it's that we will make mistakes with these conversations yep. as we go through it. But it's important to do that and learn from that because if you know, if people are afraid to have those conversations, it's not going to get better. Absolutely. I love that advice. You know, you mentioned, you know, reading up resources, you know, whether it's related to leadership or unconscious bias or any of the topics we have today. Do you have any resources you'd recommend for the audience, Galena, to dive into afterwards? Sure. I have a a couple of those and I'll be happy to send you the links uh, after the show so you can share them with the listeners. Perfect. All right. Well, Galena, I really appreciate you taking us through such an insightful conversation today, covering a broad spectrum of topics from security to startups to empowering those in the workforce. This was great. I really appreciate you jumping on the show. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And for those of you listening, we'll catch you again next time. Hey, hey, thanks for listening. That was a powerful episode. A lot went into that, so much so that I actually have a few more resources to mention to you now that the actual interview is completed. First, when Galena was mentioning that part where the number of CEOs or leaders named John and David outnumbered the amount of leaders that were female, uh, there's a link to an article that she wrote that included that. The article is titled, It's Time to Stand with Women in Power. I will be linking to that in the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 20. In addition for some actionable reading, I should say, after this interview, I do have some recommendations that Galena sent me later regarding books on women's empowerment in industry or in the workplace in general, as well as some leadership books. So the three books are, first is The Confidence Code, The Science and Art of Self-Assurance, What Women Should Know by Katie Kay. The second book is called Playing Big, Practical Wisdom for Women Who Want to Speak Up, Create, and Lead. This is written by Tara Moore. And then the last one is called Presence, Bringing Your Boldest Self to Your Biggest Challenges by Amy Cuddy. 
I would recommend that anyone listening to this show, whether you identify as a woman, an ally, whomever you may be, check them out. This is probably a good time to mention our sponsor again for today's episode, Audible. You can find audiobooks for, I believe, all three of these. Yeah, it looks like all three of these are audiobooks that you can check out. And you can claim one for free when you go to audibletrial.com slash happyhourpod. Thanks a ton, Audible, for sponsoring today's episode. Now, I mentioned that all resources are at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 20, and that my only call to action to you at this point would be to call out unconscious bias when you see it. No web links to go to for this. This is just actions that I feel we all should be taking in the workplace or in our daily lives when we encounter these type of issues. Whether you pick up any of these books or find ways to start taking action in your daily life, if you would like to join a group where you can take part in discussions about this on a regular basis, consider joining our Manufacturing Happy Hour industry community on LinkedIn. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash community. I know I said I wouldn't give out any more links, but this is related to that last topic if you want to be a part of the conversation somewhere online as well. So with that, that's it for this week. I hope we all go out and do our part to bring about change in our industry and our lives and our world in general. With that, we got more episodes coming your way soon. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. Stay innovative, stay thirsty, and we'll catch you back here on Manufacturing Happy Hour real soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.